0: Today, I am very excited to be hosting a podcast all about the world of fintech and crypto with a guest speaker who is very well-versed in the field. Without further ado, let's jump straight in. The guest that we will be speaking to today is the co-founder of Anira Labs Incorporated, a crypto startup at the forefront of a multi-chain arbitrage. He also happens to be my brother. I'm excited to share with all the listeners the difficulties and benefits of this world known as the crypto world with someone who is extremely passionate and well-versed in the topic. Now, I'm sure this introduction does not give you a lot of clarity on what he does exactly. So let's begin with the interview. Uh, How about you tell us something about Anira Labs, what it is exactly? and How did you come Uh, up with this idea?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I would say in in crypto we have this terminology that we use it's called being nerd sniped by something it's when you just let intellectual and academic curiosity drive you down a rabbit hole which may or may not have any product end game sight, but you just like enjoy the um intellectual rigor of it so i'd say it's been about like since june 6 7 months of intellectual rigor being nerd sniped, going to hackathons and um, attending crypto conferences where I just got deeper and deeper into this rabbit hole called um, MEV. Um, MEV is like crypto terminology for arbitrage. I think I explained this to you earlier, but um, for everyone that's listening that maybe doesn't have that much context about arbitrage, arbitrage is a type of trading strategy that's virtually riskless. you capitalize on small discrepancies in prices of the same asset usually. So if you have an Apple stock listed on um, NASDAQ and NYSE, and for some reason, you know, there's a slight difference in price by maybe like 5 cents, you have these institutional trading firms that have access to a bunch of like really powerful computers and a lot of money. um, And they make these trades like really fast. So they'll They'll buy the Apple stock on NASDAQ and they'll sell it on NYSE to make that five cents. But their trade size is like a hundred million dollars. So, you know, like, and they they do this every day pretty much, right? And usually in the world of traditional finance, um, arbitrage opportunities are are very much um, the privilege of a few. You've got to build your computer and your server as close as possible to these exchanges. So there's no latency. Um, and uh, and so that that's how arbitrage works in the real world. What it does do, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a great thing. Um, it keeps markets efficient. So once that arbitrage opportunity is done, prices on both exchanges are the same, and it's business as usual. And that way, like if you're a retail user, like you get to access the best possible prices. If you're these companies, you make sure that you know your your asset is liquid on all venues at the same price. Um, and it's great. So arbitrage is great for markets, great for efficiency, great for trading volumes. Um, and in crypto, it's a little bit more idiosyncratic, um, because the nature of like public blockchains is that everybody can see every transaction. And, um, because of the way these systems are built, they're distributed and trustless. Uh, the, the mechanism by which you capitalize on arbitrage is like very, very different. So uh, before I go on a on a deeper end, I'll just like end this thought with in crypto when you want to perform arbitrage, what what you basically do is you can see someone's transaction in a mempool. So like let's say Vidisha is she's set up a trade where she's going to buy an asset. Every arbitrageur can see it if there is an arbitrage opportunity, which means like maybe you know you've you've set your settings to accept like, okay, I'm okay with like losing 1% to 2%, right? Like if the asset is 10 bucks, I'm okay to pay 10.1 or 10.2. Um, so as soon as that information is out in this public mempool, there's a bunch of trading bots that come in and see that information. And what they do is they will try to take a larger transaction and put it ahead of yours. Um, and, and so what that allows them to do is like trade on information that Vidisha is actually buying of something, and that it's likely to move the market because Vidisha is like a famous influencer. And if they see that she's buying something, then a lot of people are gonna buy it. So let me jump ahead. And the manner in which you jump ahead is by, um, you pay extra transaction fees for your your transaction. So it's as easy as that, like in in crypto, like the more transaction fees you're willing to pay for a transaction, the more likely it is to be ordered at the beginning. So it'll be the first transaction in a block. so that's that's what MEV is basically, right? It's just like competition to be to have some sort of ordering rights over the blockchain. Um, it gets trickier cross-chain, and that's what we do at Anira Labs. So MEV is like a very well-documented phenomenon when it's on just one chain. So if it's on Ethereum or if it's on like Solana or if it's on Algorand, okay, cool. Like people can do MEV inside this one chain, but we're it, you know we're going in this direction of multiple blockchains and blockchains on top of blockchains, and there are you know, similar assets and liquidity across all of these blockchains. And so now when you want to do like cross-chain arbitrage, like if I want to buy Apple on an exchange on Ethereum and an exchange on Solana, and I see a price discrepancy, for me to be able to perform that arbitrage, it's a little bit trickier. And that's where we saw like a gap in the market. So that's how anira labs was basically like born out of like this problem of how do you perform cross chain arbitrage with like really high guarantees about finality atomicity and making sure that you don't have that much price decay like it, so that way there's markets are then efficient across all blockchains
0: that gives us a rough understanding of anira labs it's a lot of information to process so for yeah. the listeners if you need to pause take a break also just letting you guys know i'm not a famous influencer <laughs> Yeah. Um, I wish I was, but I'm not. But my next question for you is, um, how did you step into the crypto world? Like, what made you want to get into this? Especially with someone like I mean, we're family, so I know this. Like, we don't have a lot of background in this world. And um, what what really like made you want to be like? I want to be a part of this ever changing, fast industry.
1: Um, very good question, actually. Uh. I think so, I, I stumbled on it in 2000 and 2013. I was in college in India. We did a field trip to a bunch of universities in America. Um, I had a friend who so you've known me for a while, but usually, like when we go to these sort of events where it's like you know, public speaking, all of these things is like my comfort zone where I'm I can hold my own. Um, and I've usually take it for granted that, you know, yeah, like when, when I'm speaking, I, th- I feel like most people will pay attention in these public speaking type of uh, events. Uh, and then I had this one quiet guy in my in my group who I really hadn't spoken to much, um, who all of these like chief guests at these events, they just seem to be gravitating towards him. And I was like, what oh, what the hell's going on? Like, yeah. this guy's so quiet, you know, how come he's getting all the attention? Um and I went up to him, I was like, you know, just trying to pick up, like, what are they talking about? And uh, they were talking about Bitcoin, right? And I was like, what is, a minute, what is this Bitcoin thing, dude? I've heard about some people using this to buy weed or pay, like buy pizza at night or I mean, mostly like dark web stuff in America. So I was like, yeah, this is like not legal. And we come from a legal background. So back then it was like the wiring was if it's not legal, then it's not worthy or... um. And then so I had a conversation with him and I was just telling him, I was like, bro, I come from a legal family. I could never do this. And uh, he told me, he was like, look, you worst case is like you put 500 bucks in this thing. It goes to shit. Best case is that you make a bunch of money. Um, you don't have to do it. I'll help you do it. I'll do it on your behalf. You gave me the 500 bucks. I'll buy the Bitcoin for you. I'll set up a wallet on your phone, whatever, and I'll send it to you. i was like, okay, fine. You know, and he, he when I started speaking to him, I was like, shit, he's a really intelligent guy. So That's one thing I think I've always done in my life is give credit where credit is due. If someone has put in the work and has some insight, I always accept that, okay, it's it's worth listening and not shooting down. Um, And so I bought some Bitcoin in 2013 because of Ronak. And in 2017, it became an interesting amount of money where I was um, sitting in office at my job in traditional finance thinking to myself, where is that wallet again? Like, let me see how much this is worth now. And it ended up being some multiples of that $500. So um, I was sitting in the office. Uh, we had this Bloomberg terminal software, which allows you to visualize like charts and market data in traditional finance. And then I started looking at like the Bitcoin chart and comparing it with currencies. And I started seeing, like, oh my God, this has like been the best performing asset for a long, long time. And it doesn't seem like many people in traditional finance understand it. So it's worthy for me to see an opportunity here and like wedge myself here because I think I knew like I was doing traditional finance, but I always wanted to go the entrepreneurial route. So you sometimes look for like where you can wedge yourself where there's rarefied air, right? Like if I stayed in traditional finance, then I'd probably have to like go through the traditional hierarchy hierarchical path, which, you know, I was just like, you know, why, why should I do that when I can do this? Um, and so that that's what brought me in first. And then there's it's like a funny story. <laughs> when I decided that traditional finance firm I was going to quit, um I saw a Forbes article which highlighted like these 20 crypto hedge funds in America. Um, went to their websites and I sent them a cold email to like all 20 of these hedge funds, pretending to be my assistant and saying that I represent. Represent some like large Indian family office that wants to invest a lot of money in these funds. Um, and seven of them replied, 13 didn't. Um I flew down to America. I went to have meetings with all these guys, and I told them, I said, look, the structure that I can probably do is because I work in traditional finance in India, I know people with wealth and that are curious enough that they will throw some money at this. So let's do a fund to fund structure. You guys help me set up an offshore fund. And I will manage this pool of capital that comes from India, and I'll come and be an LP on on your funds. And so, all of them were super excited to be able to unlock capital. Um, And so that was that was basically like where I saw opportunity because I was like, look, if I'm in finance, then I might as well go to an asset class where people are looking for me as like a thought leader, looking towards me as like, okay, this guy has the information. Um, And so that's what kind of like just drew me there. At first, it was like by chance, and then it was greed basically like i was just like okay let me just try to make capitalize on this arbitrage there's this information asymmetry between the west and where we're from and i know the people that have means so let me capitalize on it so i guess uh somewhat serendipitously it makes sense that i'm doing arbitrage infrastructure now
0: it's i feel like a lot of people have this they don't have a nuanced understanding about this industry which makes them you know kind of not want to know more So what would you say to, like, the people, you know, to, like, learn from this?
1: I think it's interesting. Um, Let me... So let me try to preface this by saying, like, none of what I'm saying is um, prescriptive or financial advice or any of that. Um, I also think there's, like there's an over indexing on the speculation around tokens. And so I think most people get afraid because they're just like, which one is supposed to go up? You know, like, is it this one? Is it that one? There's a new token. There's a dog token. There's like NFTs and there's, there's, there's a lot, like it, it is overwhelming and you know, there's for 99% of this space there's it's, it can be quite noisy um and there's a lot of grifters and there's a lot of people trying to make a quick buck uh but there's there's one percent of the people that are building in this space that are building towards a reality which is um that that represents like a new like type of society um so what i like to call it is like the financial internet of the world um and the reason why I say that is because I think everybody's connected to an internet today where there's access to information. Um, but that internet is not fair. Uh, it hasn't been, it's highly opaque, super regulated, um, and often at the whims of two or three CEOs that sit in Silicon Valley that can effectively like determine the fate of a lot of people that are on this internet. So what Internet 2.0 gave us was, you know, the connection to information. I think what internet 3.0 gives us is connection to sort of like a a global internet that also allows you to, that, that also has like this entirely new financial system paradigm that I don't think we see it because we come from countries that are, you know, relatively economically stable. But if you go to, if you were born in Zimbabwe or if you were born in, I don't know, like Lebanon now. Um, The the way these systems, the financial systems and the economies are structured, it's so harsh because people do the same amount of work, but they earn money in their currency and their currency is hyperinflated, which means like it just has no value. So the first thing that I would say to anyone that's listening is to go online and compare the US dollar to like a bunch of currencies from all around the world, from like the developing world. And it, it makes it, it the the chart looks like this. It's like a line that goes downwards, which means that the value of that other currency relative to the dollar is just plummeted. And then, then I want you to plot Bitcoin to the U.S. dollar, or Ethereum to the U.S. dollar, and then the U.S. dollar looks like this, right? So, so and, and a large reason behind that is that you know the the way, the economic policy of the united states works which is done by the federal reserve um it has been to the detriment of a lot of people so i would say if you're starting off with your understanding of crypto you'd want to understand like try to understand how money works a little bit have a good sense of this and have a good like place to for, like a good form of equilibrium this is not speculative we're talking about something that represents a value and something that can sort of subsume currencies into like a global currency in a permissionless and stateless market. So I would say start there. Um, Once you have that understanding, it's a lot less intimidating, but otherwise it's very easy to get caught up in like this one is going up. So buy this one, this one is going up. Um, So yeah, if if you guys have the attention span to spend like maybe a few hours just seeing some of this and understanding how money works, then then that's a good place to then start reading about um, crypto.
0: I hope that this discussion of the crypto industry helped all the listeners understand it a bit better. The rapid changes within the tech world seem to really be taking over the entire world, from AI to Bitcoin to NFTs and so much more. So I think it's important that we try to understand it rather than shutting ourselves off from it. From BU News Service, I'm Vidisha Naik. Thank you for listening.